Farron Dogs is here, wealth advisor, founder and CEO at Harrison Wallace Financial. Farron, the NASDAQ's never been higher, right? It's a good day on the market, at least on that side. Hey there, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly been a good kickoff to uh, 2024, hasn't it? It's hard to believe we're in the beginning of March. But, um, you know, obviously, you know, we came off a really good 2023 with technology, a good rebound from 2022. And, you know, with the incredible news out of NVIDIA, that, that really just added fuel to the fire, um, really within that, that whole index and just a lot of optimism, especially when they come out and say, you know, we're in the beginning of a 10-year cycle. And that was really the message with NVIDIA when they came out with their earnings um, a little while ago. And, um, you know, we probably are. We, we've seen this with, you know, you think back to when the Internet first started. And, you know, there was a lot of exuberance during that period of time and we didn't even really know where that would take us and um so i think it's a cycle that we're going to continue to see um it would be it would be nice to see some leveling off here because things do get a little frothy at times and i think we are starting to see that with the kind of the broadening of the overall market and you know for example financials and and communications sector has actually done better uh, year to date uh, than than technology if we if we break it down into the sector and that's really good to see because we don't just necessarily want one sector carrying the whole market or one company. I mean, I wonder what our outlook about company. everything would be <laughs> were it not for Nvidia. I wonder <laughs> how any of these conversations would be going right now. It's true. It's true. And it, it does it does lend itself to the fact that, you know, companies are embracing this AI and they're really seeing that there's some implementation, no matter what industry you're in, that they can really yeah. utilize this yeah. to create efficiencies. And that obviously has increased the demand. So when they say 10 years, is that NVIDIA saying that they see this as a a 10-year a, a period of growth? And are they speaking about their company or that whole sector? Can you expand on that? Sure. They're really discussing the the AI industry as a whole. And, you know, there have been comments from analysts that really follow that, that artificial intelligence area that, you know, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in what the possibilities with artificial intelligence implementation is going to be. And much like, you know, way back in the day when, why would I need a computer in my house? That's crazy, right? And now we're walking around with them in our hands. And I think that's what the analysts are seeing in NVIDIA and all the chip makers are just seeing so much demand for this because they are seeing so many different types of application with it. And, yeah, right, you know, right. it, it is just scratching, scratching the surface. So what, what are those applications we're talking about? Self-driving cars? Is it medical devices? Is it just these other applications like writing essays and doing research? What, what are these chips going to be used for? Yeah, I think it's a combination of that. It's certainly going to be, you know, everything from marketing. We're seeing some just incredible, uh, you know, AI productions in the marketing field, uh, the communications field when you're talking about um, 
how companies are, are going to communicate with their customers. A lot of this is just going to be on autopilot, whether we like it as consumers or not. I think in the healthcare industry, you're going to see AI implemented in a lot of diagnostics. And, you know, even in the financial industry, I mean, you know, you, you look at how artificial intelligence could be implemented in portfolios and rebalancing yeah. and that type oh, of yeah. thing. Sure. Well, I saw a story yesterday about how AI is actually being contemplated to predict the flow of the market and the flow mm-hmm. of investments. I wonder if anybody's calculating the negative impact in that if jobs are lost or industries are displaced, then is there a negative? Is there some sort of drag there? Yeah, that's a really great point. And I don't really think that that's been dug into because there's definitely going to be some job displacement because of this, you know, technology replacement and robotics. Um, a lot of a lot of the argument will be, well, these are going to take over positions that people didn't want anyway. And I I'm not sure I believe all of that because I think there are going to be people in my industry. Um, there's going to be people in every industry that will could very well be out of a job due to yeah. AI. And uh, so I think that has yet to be seen. We're not quite there. But at the same time, we may see new jobs that we aren't even thinking of being created to you know, supplement AI yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that. Yeah. So... You know, it's <laughs> it's a, a whole new a whole new frontier, and you think about that in terms of as I go back to like the the uh, explosion of the internet, and you think about all the different types of jobs and careers that were spawned from that uh, that were that didn't exist in. Oh, sure. Well, you're making me think about right? green energy. As much as we mm-hmm. worry that maybe reliance on green energy, which is where hopefully we'll go will displace people in industries that are more carbon-based, but who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. the green energy jobs will supplant at an even larger rate than the, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at least that's what we tell those people. By the way, Farron, I got this note from one of our listeners earlier. We were talking about the price of gas. Hey, John, consumers are getting gassed by big oil. My gas station just jumped up to almost $4. What's going on with oil and gas prices, Farron? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've been pretty blessed with lower prices at the pump really since September uh, and, and all through the fall. And we are starting to see, you know, a lot of it had to do with OPEC and the amount of oil they were willing to release or not release in this case. And we are seeing increase in, uh, increase in demand. You know, people are still moving around. Um, airplanes are still demanding a lot of fuel. And we have seen an uptick in the, in the demand for, for gas and, and fossil fuel-related items. So I'm not surprised to see this. I was truthfully kind of surprised to see gas prices where they were in September and I think we're going to continue to see that as we go through the seasonal adjustments up through spring and into summer. Pretty typical. Are higher gas prices a sign of a robust economy? Um, not necessarily. Um, a lot of it could do with supply and how much supply is being generated 
not only here in the U.S., but how much is uh, really being released by the OPEC nations. And if they keep a, a tight handle on supply, that's obviously going to drive up those prices. Right. And clearly, when they when they flood the market with oil, we, we see those prices come down. So I can't really say that it means a good economy or a bad economy. It's really supplying the, the supply that's issuing or kind of dictating the prices right now. Is that inflationary? And then does that affect maybe the timing by the Fed? It will be inflationary because we see, you know, you think of diesel and you think of all the transportation that's required to get goods from point A to point B. And that that cost is going to be absorbed by the consumer and because that's going to be a higher cost. And while it's been nice to see some of those costs come down, um, I think the, the Fed is really going to have to play a, a tight game here. And I'm I'm happy to hear that they're not too enthusiastic about cutting rates. Uh, they, they've done the heavy lift over the last 18, 24 months of, you know, increasing rates. We saw some pain along with that, but it has had a positive effect on the CPI and the PCE, as we just saw the other day. And, and that's really what they wanted. And I'm not sure the consumer is necessarily feeling uh, less, less inflation when they go to the grocery store or go out to eat. Um, but it is better than it was, you know, where we are seeing that slowly come down. So I would like to see the Fed, you know, be cautious about cutting rates too quickly. Um, because, as I mentioned, they, they've done the hard work. And I just can't imagine they would want to unravel that unnecessarily. Yeah, well, we don't want to make things worse or slow maybe the progress. But it seems to me like there's a lot of people hoping for, rooting for lower interest rates. They want to see the Fed to cut at least three times. Now, what do you say Mm -hmm. to those people? What do you say to them? Um, I say, why? (laughs) I mean, it's, it's good to have... You know, a healthy economy is has both good interest rates and good equity returns. We saw that in the early 2000s. We saw it in the 1990s. And, you know, those two, as I've, I, I know I've said in the past, do coexist. And it's good to have a, a nice interest rate on a savings account or Absolutely. a treasury bill and, and have reasonable cost to borrow money. And I'm not saying 7% is the, the, the best mortgage rate. Um, sure, it'd be nice to see them closer to 6 and I think that that slowly will happen. Um, but we just got so addicted to low interest rates, and we saw what that did. It flooded the market with um, just incredible dollars and chasing housing prices and all sorts of goods prices. And when things are so inexpensive to purchase, then you're going to see that inflation, which we saw most specifically in the housing market. And, you know, I think we need to come down to reality and say having a higher interest rate is not a bad thing. And while, yes, certainly as interest rates would come down, it's good for it's good for equities, Um but it's not necessarily good for that person that's that's trying to invest in something stable. And I think there's a balance there and I think we're I think we're reasonably close to that balance. What do you mean invest in something stable? What is that? 
Well, I mean, for my clients that are taking distributions, it's nice to have the tool to say, let's look at at some CDs. Let's look sure. at some high-yield savings accounts for those title dollars, yeah. Yeah. right? Okay, but maybe um, you're answering my question, and there was going to be, what do we lose, though? What would we lose? What are we trading for if interest rates come down? If the Fed were a little more aggressive, it would seem to mm-hmm. some of us as though that's the icing on the cake. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe things would be worse where? What do we lose if interest rates come down more than two or three times this year? Right. Well, I, I think one, one risk is that you are going to reignite more inflation because it's going to make dollars easier to get, to, dollars easier to borrow. And so you're going to have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods, and that's going to drive up prices. And that was the whole reason they raised rates in the first time, right? And uh, I think we really need to get some substantial data that inflation as a whole is truly under control. I mean, two years ago, they were calling it transitory, and we knew that wasn't the case, right? So I don't, I don't really know what the big rush is, because I think the lending rates are reasonable. They are high for like cars and that sort of thing right now, but cars are still expensive and and cars are still trying to catch up from from the COVID short supply. So what do you think business um, what what are what are businesses going to do that want to capitalize or expand or get off the ground are are some mm-hmm. of them waiting on the sidelines for lower interest rates or are they just going to accept the rates as they are and and eventually we'll see that, those kind of investments i think if uh, if a company is looking to expand organically and and you know build new factories or build new offices or whatever the case may be i think they're going to 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 go move forward with that with the expectation they can always refinance this debt but they want to get the ball rolling and you know, if if their numbers are there, if their projections on their profitability of whatever their product or service is, then I don't really think a half a point is going to make or break their deal. Um, I think they realize, anyone realizes that the, it's more likely rates will be coming down versus going continuing to go up. And so I think a lot of people, whether they're buying a house or expanding a business, are looking at it as, well, I can do this now. It's a bit of a stretch, maybe, but I, I feel confident that in two or three years, I'd be able to refinance this at a lower rate. And in the meantime, I can get my infrastructure in place and get moving forward. And maybe the rate isn't going to get a lot lower. It sounds like you're of a mind that we're going to get used to 6%. And that's historically not terrible. So maybe that's going to mm-hmm. be the new norm. And we just need maybe the, you know, the reason houses aren't selling or some of the other things aren't happening that would benefit from lower interest rates aren't happening. It's just because almost of a recency bias. We remember 3%. Well, we got to forget about 3%. <laughs> right. It's going to be 6%, y'all. So let's move forward. That's what I'm hearing right. you say, Farron. It is. It's true. I started in this business in 1990, and I had clients that had 10 and 12% mortgage interest rates. And they were delighted when, you know, in 1996 and 1998, they were able to refinance at six and a half. And, you know, like you say, it's relative to what we've just recently experienced. So back then, six and a half was awesome. 
And yeah. now we're like, oh, geez, six and a half. That seems really tight. <laughs> you know, so it's all relative. But I think a healthy, a healthy balance. Uh, truthfully, I'm, my, my sweet spot for a, a mortgage rate would be somewhere around five and a half to six percent. I think that's reasonable, yeah. and yeah. Um, and I think we'll maybe stabilize there. I don't think that's a bad thing. That's Farron Dogs, wealth advisor, founder and CEO at Harrison Wallace Financial. Okay, Farron, always an interesting conversation. Thanks for today. Thank you. Appreciate it. You may recall we had a conversation not that long ago with Luke Carlson, the CEO of Discover Strength, an exercise program coming to Chicago. And boy, it's knocking on the door now. Here it is. Luke, welcome back. You're on WGN. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's my, it's my pleasure to be joining you. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, March 4th, is that the opening date? Yep, we're looking at a March 4th opening. This will be our first studio in Chicago, our first studio in Illinois. Uh, we're in a number of other markets. The whole concept is built around the idea that busy people don't have time to waste on workouts that don't work. And so we wanted to create a time-efficient exercise option. So we focus on two 30-minute workouts per week. It is strength training only. You're always with an exercise physiologist the entire time. So the whole idea is how could you maximize the, the benefits that you receive in the least amount of time? Uh, and that's what we've done for 18 years. We're excited about having our first location in Chicago. What are the benefits? What's unique about this? How does it help me? Yeah, w- wonderful question. When we think about strength training or resistance exercise, we've always thought about or we've always used a paradigm of muscles and maybe preparation for sports. But the reality is the major benefits of strength training are often underappreciated. So the first reason someone strength trains is cardiovascular health. The American Heart Association just published their consensus statement, and it says, hey, lifting weights is just as beneficial for the prevention of cardiovascular disease as aerobic exercise. And they go on to say, you should do it twice a week for a total of 60 minutes. That's one. Another benefit that no one ever talks about is restoring our cognitive health. We know that the best way to improve cognitive function as we age is via strength training. So we look at these as the health protective benefits of strength training that essentially help us live longer, uh, get a longer lifespan, but a greater health span as well. And so that's what our our company is all about. That's what we've been focused on is delivering those health protective benefits to our customers. So when you say that strength training, this weightlifting, say, is as beneficial cardiovascularly as other aerobic exercises, is it because I'm working up another sweat, my heart is pounding for a while, or is just the business of lifting heavy weights itself going to have the same benefit as a half-hour run? Yeah, my answer is going to be both. But we realize that when we do strength training exercise, of course, your, your heart rate is elevated like aerobic exercise. But there's adapt- adaptations like your um, the pliability in your arteries actually increases when you do strength training exercise. Uh, your rusting blood pressure lowers to the same extent as aerobic exercise. You're more in, in massive uh, research trials. We see a greater reduction in abdominal fat storage, and males tend to store their fat on their abdomen. And when we look at the long-term trials of what's the best way to lose abdominal fat, 
strength training is more effective than aerobic exercise. Now, why does that matter? Having abdominal fat storage is one of the uh, five or six diagnostic criterion for what's called metabolic syndrome, which is a clustering of risk factors that predispose us to full-blown cardiovascular disease. So yes, you're elevating your heart rate, but there's all these other physiological mechanisms that strength training brings about that reduce our risk of cardiovascular disease. But if I'm not very strong, I can't lift a lot of weight. Am I going to have uh, less uh, benefit? No, not, not, not at all. It's actually the inverse of that. The research is really clear that the worse shape that you're in, and in fact, the older that you are, so it's one thing to strength train when you're 25 or 35 years of age, but when we're 60 years of age, 70 years of age, or 80 years of age, we actually get stronger faster. We receive these cardiovascular benefits quicker. We add muscle tissue quicker. So I would say the benefits that we receive from strength training across the lifespan, they're Mm -hmm. just more pronounced as we age. So if there is an optimal age, the strength train is absolutely 50 to 95 years of age right in there. It's funny you mentioned that because I think when we think about some of the Orange Theory or other gyms or fitness clubs or ideas, it's a bunch of younger people and they all look pretty damn good. And if I'm 60 or older and out of shape, I'm thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not the candidate for this. You make it sound like I am. Yeah, John, you are. And the way I think about it is the benefits of strength training exercise are largely lost on the populations who are actually into it. And that's kind of like this stereotypical 25 to 35 year old, you know, maybe someone that was an athlete in high school or college. And what we're trying to do is spread a message that, wow, from a health protective standpoint, from, from what we would call medical exercise, medically significant exercise, Hmm. as we age, we should be engaged in strength training. So you've now got a place opening up on Erie, which is uh, 146 West Erie. So that's in the city. Uh, that's your first location in Illinois, I think you said. Are you going to expand to other locations throughout Chicagoland? Yeah, throughout the city of Chicago, yes, and then all the surrounding suburbs. Absolutely. That's what we're working on right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's just, a, a, a biz, uh, I guess, a proposition of capital Uh, market equity, people getting to know who you are, telling their friends, that sort of thing, huh? Yeah, and we'll expand in in that market with a combination of company-owned locations, locations that we own, and then we also franchise our locations, and so we'll have a number of franchise locations that will open as well. We like to enter uh, enter a market with a combination of company-owned and franchise locations. Do the uh, customers have a year-long membership? How do they use the service? How do they sign up or pay? Yeah, so we have people decide, do they want to work out one time per week or twice per week or kind of in between there? So you choose, I'm going to work out four times, six times, or eight times in a month, and then we will hit your credit card for that each month. And one of our real obsessions is if you want to stop, you stop whenever you want to, and you don't lose anything. You never pay for anything that you don't lose. Um, so if you didn't do one of those workouts, it rolls over to the next month. So we really want to be easy to work with, and we want you to use everything that you're purchasing, which maybe is a limitation of the average health club membership. You have it. You didn't go for a month. You still paid for it. We want to make sure that you're using everything that you purchase. But someone yeah. decides to come four times, six times, or eight times in a month, which is a time-efficient proposition, right? The number one barrier to exercise and in this country is time. 
And it turns out it doesn't take very much time to get in really good shape. We just have to be intentional about how we use that time. And this is on-premises. I'm not going to do this over Zoom with a trainer, right? Yeah, it's, it's all in our facilities. And, and one other thing, um, it's funny, you said, so four, six, maybe eight times a month doesn't sound like a lot. I know some people that are trying to do that many times a week. Uh, there will be, in your experience, bona fide benefit from as few as six or eight workouts a month? Yeah, I would say my experience, yes, but it's also the preponderance of scientific research. The, the interesting thing about exercise science research is it turns out we're actually not supposed to exercise that much. We're supposed to exercise pretty hard, harder than we thought. We're supposed to push ourselves, but we're just not supposed to do very much of it. So I just mentioned that American Heart, uh, Heart Association paper. We're supposed to strength train one to two times a week, 30 to 60 minutes, and there's no added benefit from a heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease protection standpoint beyond that. Hmm. And so, you know, I've worked with NFL football players in the NFL for years and years and high school football players and college football players. And I work with a heck of a lot of 60, 70, 80, 90 year olds. And it's always been less is more twice per week is the upper limit of what you need. And I think the reason we don't ever hear that message is that people that teach us about exercise are people who just love to exercise. So they tell us, hey, we should exercise <laughs> yeah. more. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. we, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should do less. We should just do it smarter. Luke Carlson is the CEO of Discover Strength. That's their website, discoverstrength.com. I'm encouraged. I like your attitude, and I, I hope that uh, folks sign up. Luke, thanks for your time, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you discoverstrength.com. Okay, let's discover more business news. Here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Corporate Expansion Magazine site selection has named the Chicago area as the top region in the country for corporate investment. It's the 11th year in a row for the designation. The magazine says Chicago continues to outpace all other regions in the country with an influx of new corporate locations and expansions. Last year, World Business Chicago issued a year-end report that said there were 163 pro-Chicagoland decisions that created more than 23,000 job opportunities. According to Cranes, those decisions included 117 expansions and 46 relocations or new market entries into the area. They generated about $1.9 billion in earnings. Chicago Ridge Mall has been purchased by a Florida investment group for an undisclosed price. The Southwest Suburban Mall was sold after the owners failed to pay an $80 million mortgage that came due last year. The shopping center likely sold for just a fraction of what it was once worth. The property is located on Ridgeland Avenue between 95th and 99th Streets. It's been struggling since the closure of a Carson's department store in 2018. There's a Dick's Sporting Goods store there now, and the mall is 80% occupied. The new owner says it plans to upgrade the property and find even more tenants. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. We've got a business of food update now. Here's Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you. Happy Friday to you. And let's see who we have on the phone. My name is Shania Pickett. Shania, are you a farmer? Yes. We'll hear more from farmer Shania Pickett after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Before we hear more from Shania, let's hear from... Andrea Yusefi, the Chief of Partnerships and Development at By the Hand Club for Kids. Yeah, the By the Hand Club for Kids was started 23 years ago in Cabrini Green to give kids something positive and constructive to do after school. Our 
model is mind, body, and soul taking kids by the hand, literally, whether that's our dinner program, mental health counseling, or um, gardening. There are now six by the hand clubs around Chicago's south and west sides. And tomorrow in Altgeld Gardens. We are celebrating uh, the launch of Chicago's first ever youth-led hydroponic container farming program called Bowen Harvest. It's one of those repurposed shipping containers that the Scala sisters, who run freight to plate, helped put together. The Chicago experts in container farming, and they're mentoring us and teaching our students how to do this incredible work. So, in Altgeld Gardens, which has the lowest per capita income of any of Chicago's 77 neighborhoods, and... It's actually known as one of the starkest food deserts in the country. But now, it has a local source of fresh produce. That's right. With the container, we'll grow over a ton of produce annually. And the By the Hand Club Container Farm is having its first harvest tomorrow. We are harvesting over 2,000 heads of lettuce and we're having a big party for the community. Again, that container farm is being run by high schoolers, including Shania Pickett, who you met a couple of minutes ago, a 10th grader at Bowen College Prep who helped plant all of the lettuce seeds, and she says she gets a lot out of being an urban farmer. Yeah, I love to plant. It's like when I'm having a bad day or irritated or something, it actually calms me down. I'm real focused when I'm doing it. Congrats to Shania and all of the students who run the container farm in Altgeld Gardens. From the farm to your belly, it's National Pig Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. The Elmhurst History Museum has a new exhibit that just opened called Victory at Home. Let's talk a little bit about that with Sarah Cox, the curator of exhibits. Hi, Sarah. Hi, good afternoon. I like the sound of this, and that is what it was like on the home front during the war. Talk to us a little bit about the exhibit. Absolutely. I mean, the idea for the exhibit was quite simply, we knew we wanted to do something with World War II. The museum in the past has looked at individual stories from soldiers um, and their dealings with battles um, in the Pacific and Europe. Um, also, you know, just the general idea of World War II and its history, but we haven't really focused on just the home front. Um, FDR famously said, you know, this was a battle of two fronts. This was the battlefront and the home front. Um, you know, and he was able to mobilize uh, 130 Americans during this time um, to band together, and they really did. This was kind of a very significant moment. Um, you know, before the war started, um, or before, you know, the U.S. got into the war in 1941, um, the U.S. wasn't really enthusiastic about joining uh, the war that was currently being fought uh, by the European countries, and um, they were adamantly against it. You know, we were coming out of the Great Depression. People were mentally and financially fatigued, where our our, uh, reserves of soldiers weren't, Uh, We didn't have that great a number. We didn't have, you know, a large number of ammunition uh, stores. So they were a little worried about that. FDR was coming up for re-election, and he really wanted his platform to be the success of the New Deal. However, it's when December 7th happened, the um, you know, the day that we'll live in infamy, that everybody's minds turned and said, we're in this. You know, that 94% that was against it was now in it. Um, and they did everything they could in this very resilient and resourceful generation of individuals, you know, unfortunately now a generation that we're slowly losing. And, you know, they're in their 90s now, um, some of them. It's, you know, important stories that need to be told. Um, 
And so we kind of go through the different themes from rationing, scrap collecting, victory gardens, war bonds, just the different areas that people could get involved. Because even if you weren't on the battlefront and you couldn't serve in the military, you could still do something to contribute. And I like that the exhibit also includes, as you say in your own press release, not only what we did, but some of the mistakes we made. And then there are exhibits that talk about the incarceration in a Japanese internment camp and some of maybe the missteps that we made at that critical time. It's really a a good idea. It opens March 1st. Hey, what do you know? It's open. So do I just go online? Do I buy tickets? Do I show up at the door? How does that work? Um, you just show up at the door. Um, we are free to the public every single day. So there's no need to book any tickets. You just show up. You can visit our website to see more information about our different programs. We've got a great slate of programs coming up, especially in the next two months. We've got our lecture on March 10th, Fly Girls. we got March 16th, we have our Victory Garden demonstration. And then April 7th, we have our Tasting History. This will be a cooking class using some of those famous recipes from Grandma and Great Grandma <laughs> that they had to use during World War II. So um, we got kind of a great slate of programs to go with the exhibition. Um, but, yeah, just come on in. We're free. ElmhurstHistory.org. ElmhurstHistory.org. Sarah Cox, the curator of exhibits there. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much, John.